Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 501 for December 11th, 2019. On today's show, pianist Roberta Pickett. This show is supported by its members, without whom the Jazz Session would not be possible. There are now two levels, $5 and $10 per month. Both come with cool bonus material. You can visit thejazzsession.com slash join right now to become a member. Big thanks to Russell Archibald for becoming the latest member and for having such a cool name. Roberta Pickett has a new album out called Domestic Harmony. Pickett plays Mintz. It's the music of her husband, drummer Billy Mintz, and it starts this way. Roberta Pickett, welcome to the Jazz Session. Thank you, Jason. It's great to be here with you. We're here to talk about a record that I think in all of the years of this show might have the loveliest backstory of any record we've ever talked about. <laughs> uh, the new album is called Domestic Harmony. Pickett plays Mints. And I, I, I can't think of a better place to start than with you just telling us how this record came to be. My husband uh, is Billy Mintz, the drummer. And he's also a pretty prolific composer. And a couple of years ago, he was approaching a landmark birthday. I won't say which one, because he's a very private person. And I was just thinking about a, a birthday gift for him. And, you know, we don't, we don't really buy each other a lot of things. Um, we're both kind of picky uh, about what we like. You know? So I somehow it just popped into my head. I said, why don't I record a CD of Billy's music for solo piano and surprise him? So, so it was just a thought that I had. And the funny thing is, as, as his birthday was nearing, you know, I, I said to him, oh, I, I have to give you your birthday present. And he said, he said, well, I hope you didn't spend a lot of money because, <laughs> because, you know, because we, we always know. You know and I, said, I said, well, actually, I kind of did. And, and he got all alarmed. You know, he thought I bought him something like, I'm, who knows, you know. And, I, and then he said, well, I hope it's something you can return. They were very blunt with each other. <laughs> I hope it's something that I can return if I don't like it. And I said, no, you can't return it. So he became very alarmed. I can't return it, and you spent a lot of money. He's really getting worried now, you know. So of course, um, that was that was a lot of fun for me. Seen <laughs> them that way. I liked in something that I that you wrote about this uh, album. You talked about, and you just kind of made reference to it. How you're you're pretty blunt and honest with each other. And actually, the recording of this 
of this thing for him required some sneaking around, right? Because you had to be in a studio that you had to have some other reason for being gone for and doing things when he was on tour or things like that, which I just, it's so funny to have something as pure and beautiful as the end product be arrived at in a way that, you know, might feel a little guilty when you're doing it. It completely arose out of deception. Yes, it's pretty ironic. So I recorded the the CD over the course of a couple of days when he was out of town on tour. And I remember him calling me that evening and saying, you know, hey, what have you been up to? Nothing much. you know. (laughs) And then um, when he was back in town, I went back to the studio to do a few edits and, and mastering and such. At that point, I did have to make an excuse, you know, and I think I said I was going shopping a couple of times. And of course, I came home with with nothing from the shopping trips, which, you know, if if uh, if Billy were a more suspicious kind of person, who knows what he would have thought. Um, But but we are very trusting with each other. So uh, I I somehow I I got away with it for that reason, I think. Now, I don't want to uh, violate Billy's uh, privacy in any way, but to whatever degree you're comfortable, will you describe the experience of playing this for him? Well, actually, I would be happy to describe it. I actually posted um, a video about the CD on YouTube, and I think it's on, on my website as well. And so you can you can actually see him turn putting the CD into the CD player and, and realizing, Hey, he actually says, Hey, <laughs> realizing this is one of his tunes and, and, and then getting overwhelmed as he kind of gradually realizes uh, what's going on, you know, kind of dawns on him. Cause we, we, it was on his birthday, the evening of his birthday. So a, a dear friend of ours uh, was in the room with us. So she was videotaping on her phone um, what, what Billy's reaction was. So that was pretty cool. But he was, he was you know, very touched and moved and, and kind of shocked. And, you know, it was, it was really uh, pretty overwhelming for both of us. I think it was a really nice moment. <laughs> Oh, I see what this is. Wow! How did you... Happy birthday. That's beautiful. That's unbelievable. That is unbelievable. It's really unbelievable. Wow. Wow. Holy shit. And how did I not know about it? I'm, you know, it's like I see you every yeah, you're day. Trusting. <laughs> There's a, you know, an added layer of this because you you didn't just record 
an album for him. You recorded an album of his own compositions. So there's there's this real really beautiful kind of interplay that that draws greatly on both of you. It's uh you know, it's you didn't just record an album of, you know, Duke Ellington tunes for Billy or something. I mean, these are his own these are his own compositions. So I feel like right. the in a way your the gift is almost like a mirror or a reflection or a series of photographs that allow him to kind of look at how you see the music that he's written, which just strikes me yeah, as very deep. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's funny now that, now that I think about it, uh, you know, I, I, there's an aspect of, of, of how I arrived at this idea that I had forgotten about. And I think what happened was I may have been at, this is, this is kind of dark, uh, but I, I think I may have been at a memorial service for another musician and, uh, who had passed away and they were playing some of this musician's music. And I think I remember thinking like, gee, you know, nobody should have to wait until they're, until they die for people to come around and play their music. You know, it always seems to happen that way. We have this jazz repertoire and uh, people play the music from that repertoire uh, and they also play their own music, but most people don't, don't play a lot of other people's music um, unless it's part of that, that uh standard repertoire and uh so i remember thinking like well wouldn't it be nice to do this for billy you know while he's still around you know so i I think that was that was kind of part of it and um yeah i I had played a lot to speak more directly to your question or your comment i had played a lot of these tunes um in billy's bands uh i recorded a couple with my trio with billy uh, so I was, I was familiar with, with all of these tunes and some of them, I even heard Billy banging away at the piano day after day when he was writing them. <laughs> uh, and, and so I, so I knew the music, you know, but it was, it was sort of a new challenge to, to play it, to approach it from a solo piano perspective. Uh, and, and I think it was, um, interesting from my point of view. And I think it, it, it gave it another perspective for Billy. You know, he's heard his music played by quartet, by quintet, by trio, uh, he had never heard it played in this context, and I, I think that was uh, it did give him a different perspective as well. Feel free to correct me on this, but it strikes me that one of the challenges of his music is uh, on solo piano is the the rhythmic demands. It's uh, there's a lot going on in his compositions rhythmically, which makes them you know really really great to listen to. But I can imagine makes them a little bit challenging to play when you're responsible for communicating everything happening in the music. Well, on some of them that's true. For example, the, the first tune, Ghost Sanctuary, which is in, in five four. 
when he plays it with the band, they're really, it's, it's, it's sort of a drone with a beautiful melody on top. It, it relies on the rhythm section to keep the groove going and, and to, to, keep, to help keep the momentum going because the, the harmony is fairly static. And there's also some beautiful harmony in the horns. He recorded this um, on his two-bass band album, the two-bass band live. And so I, I think that was a real challenge to make uh, a tune that does not have a lot of variety in terms of, of rhythm or harmony to make that interesting in a, in a pianistic sense. So that was a challenge. And certainly uh, the tune Ugly Beautiful, which is basically just rhythm that goes on and on another another kind of, it's not it's harmonically it changes a lot but it's rhythmically very repetitive and it's the kind of tune that has a lot of energy and the drummer the drummer has a responsibility to keep that energy going and so without a drummer to find a way to keep that that momentum going and that um that was uh challenging so yeah certainly for some of billy's tunes um translating them to piano uh was a challenge for for that reason uh, a, Schmier is a perfect, another perfect example because it's based on a sticking pattern. You know, so how do you how do you translate that to piano? You know, fortunately the piano is, is also a percussion instrument. It's a string instrument, but it's also a percussion instrument. So you have to approach it from many different perspectives. I think it helped that I had a couple of previous solo piano CDs under my belt because I had some experience with using the piano in different ways to get the different sounds to assure that there would be enough variety in the music, in the program. Uh, so I, I think that helped that this wasn't the first solo piano CD. I, I had the experience to know this doesn't have to be literal. Everything doesn't have to be literal. Sometimes when you're playing solo, you know, you have to decide, um, am I going to include everything from the original tune? Am I, am I going to take something away? Am I going to add something? You know, so um, I think having had that experience and, and knowing that I didn't have to be 100% literal, I, th I think was helpful. With this episode, we start the second 500 episodes of the Jazz Session, more than 12 years. It's a one-of-a-kind archive of the past decade and more of this music, hundreds of hours of stories by the people who create the music we love. I started this show in 2007 with no idea what I was doing, other than knowing that I loved interviewing jazz musicians and thought other people might like it too. When I started the show, my older son was four years old. My younger son wasn't even one yet. Now both are over six feet tall. One is about to start college. And through all the years, all the moves, all the life changes, the jazz session has kept on going. The question becomes though, how much further can it go? The only person who can answer that question is you. I'm only able to make this show because people like you make the switch from listeners to members. I'd like to be able to do so much more with the Jazz Session. More in-person interviews, which means more travel and more festival coverage. And that's possible only if you decide that you value this show enough to support it with your money. If you do, go to thejazzsession.com slash join and become a member for 5 or $10 a month. You'll get bonus episodes, early access to every show, and more. Thanks for being here for all these years. Now become part of the second 500 by becoming a member.
there's a moment in Schmear, which I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that I don't know if it's supposed to be funny, but at the at the top of Schmear, uh-huh. there's like a, you know, kind of intricate little line. And then this, these big chords. And yeah. <laughs> every time I hear those, I just it just makes me laugh. I don't know if it's supposed to be funny, but to me, there's just something beautiful about it. It's just like, here's all this little, you know, this little intricate bit, and then just like, bang, here, you know, here, have the rest. And I, I just totally. I love it. I think it's yeah. Great. Well, um, actually, that that is that's been my interpretation for a while. Um, that it's the 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 bridge of the tune is actually it's it's pretty much the same melody as the a it's just it's just in, in a different key it goes up from c to f on the paper it didn't originally say anything about playing it at a different tempo it was the idea was just the band plays the, the horns play the a section this very fast sticking pattern uh and and then at the bridge the piano plays plays the part and, and it could be a little more loose or open but it, but it didn't really say anything specifically on the part and i chose to interpret it that I was going to do the exact opposite of the of the A section of the first section. I was going to play very slow, drawn out, dramatic chords, very diatonic. And I remember actually um, the, the first time you heard me do it, one of the horn players in the band looking over and laughing. So, so it, 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 it does definitely have a humorous element. Tell me, I'd like you to just go a little deeper on interpreting things for solo piano you you said something very interesting which is that part of the process is deciding what to include and i'm just i'm curious uh just to know a little bit more about that process whether it's for this music or for your other solo records or you know just in any context uh, how you approach converting things to solo piano pieces yeah well it's different for every tune so there's not one a one-size-fits-all approach for example, on Ghost Sanctuary, it's a very long form, and the way Billy wrote the tune, it starts out with, with this introduction that's in time. The drone starts from the very beginning, and it's in time, and there's an, it, what I consider the, it, the, the intro before it actually goes into the melody of the tune. And when I played it on solo piano, I played that intro rubato. That's how the record starts. And then I went into the 5-4 groove, on the next part of the tune. So for me, that became just an intro to the rest of the tune. And then when Billy heard it, I remember him saying, I was referring to it as the introduction. And, and, and he said, oh, I, I never thought of that as the introduction. I just thought of it as the beginning of the, of the tune, of the melody. So I had, inter- I had interpreted the first part of the tune as the introduction. And I said, I'm going to play this uh, just rubato because I felt that it, it, need, it, was, it was almost too much just for piano. I and mean, when you hear it with the band, it works great because it's this, um, you know, the, the, the drums are, are playing this sort of, I want to say almost Afro-Cuban, that's not really entirely accurate, but it'll give you a sense uh, of what's going on with the basses droning and the horns playing over it. So there's a lot of color going on and a lot of rhythmic activity. So, you know, when I played it on piano, I, I didn't want to have it go on 
for that long because I didn't have all those other elements of the, the timbres and the and the rhythms. So so that's one one way I dealt with that, you know, is just to find some other kind of variety by making the introduction rubato. Some tunes I pretty much just played them exactly the way I play the part when I play the tune with Billy's groups. For example, on Schmier, Schmier I, I just played the melody. Uh, it's pretty much just everybody in the band, including the drums, playing the melody including the drums and the, and the bass, actually. So that's how I, I interpreted Schmier. And then on the, on the blowing, on the so, when I soloed on Schmier, this is the only tune where Billy has a real agenda in terms of the soloing. He usually just lets the musicians do what they feel is right. He hires the right people. But on Schmier, he always wants me to take the first solo, and he always tells me he wants me to play lines very low in the, um, in the range of the piano, kind of like in the style of Lenny Tristano, the single note, fast lines, uh, low, low down on the piano, and the bass and the drums walk very fast uh, underneath that. sort of a tongue-in-cheek attempt to mimic that. It's the only tune on the record where I walk bass lines in my left hand. I'm just walking free bass, free, free, harmonically free bass lines. Normally, I don't really like to play bass lines while I'm playing solo piano. I, I just feel like that's best left to a bass player or, or you know, I, I play bass lines when I play organ. But I just feel like the piano doesn't really lend itself to that very well. But I thought it would be sort of a fun tongue-in-cheek reference to Billy's desire to have, to have this tune played a certain way when he plays it with his band. So there were some little inside jokes like that. How did you and Billy meet? We met back, I think it was around 1998. We met on a Joey Sellers gig. Joey Sellers is a great trombone player and arranger uh, from the West Coast. And he was living in New York for a short time. And he brought Billy out to do um, some gigs with us. Um, I, I was I was actually a sub in the band the night we met. Um, so um, we were playing at a Japanese restaurant on Bleecker Street. I think it was on Bleecker Street called the Neo Lounge. And the night we met, Dave Liebman was actually a guest uh, with the band. So it was the first time I played with Billy, and it was actually the first time I ever played with Dave Liebman. <laughs> and um, and it was a very dark room. Uh, and Billy was wearing these dark sunglasses. And what I didn't know at the time is that Billy is, is very shy, and he's also he also has his eyes are very light blue, and he's very sensitive to light. So he was wearing these, these sunglasses, and I just remember looking over and thinking, like, who's that strange guy wearing sunglasses in this dark <laughs> nightclub? And, and, you know, he's very shy, so we didn't really talk much that night. I just, I just thought he was a very strange person. <laughs> <laughs> but we had a lot of mutual friends, actually, because a lot of his friends had moved to New York um, previous to that. So 
um, you know, we kept we just kept crossing paths, and the rest is history, <laughs> as they say. Speaking of history, uh, your own is is quite interesting because there was at least some point in time where you were contemplating a. Uh, although I know your schooling in, uh, involved both music and this other career, but there was at least some point in time when you were contemplating a totally other path for your life that luckily you gave up for music. But would you just talk a little bit about that and how you made that decision? Where do I begin? Well, when I was, when I was young, you know, I, I came from, I come from a musical family and um, my father passed away very, very early in my life. He was a lot older than my mother. And um, I, I think it was dr- just drilled into my head that it was a very, very hard life uh, to be a musician. I always was very academic in school. I, I went to um, one of the public magnet schools um, and um, I think I, I just didn't, I was afraid of being trapped, you know, in, in a um, musically like, you know, that I wouldn't be able to succeed um, as a jazz musician. That I would be trapped doing, you know, weddings and things like that. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it, I knew it wasn't what I wanted for my life. It was kind of my mother's idea to like pursue a, double well not a double degree it was her idea to pursue a computer science degree it was my idea to do, to do the double degree uh and um i ended up at tufts university and new england conservatory they, they have a program that i believe is still in existence where you, you apply to both schools you have to be accepted by both schools and you spend five years getting two bachelor's degrees uh and once i once I graduated, I, I actually took a job for a while, but I already knew it wasn't the right thing. I knew I was thinking maybe I could eventually work part time, but I was really unhappy. I really wanted to be focused on growing as a musician and not spending eight hours a day writing code, basically. So after about a year, I left and I moved back to New York and I started studying with Richie Byrack and just practicing and sessioning all the time. Just, you know, really, which was my had always been my heart's desire to just spend all of my time working on becoming a better musician. So uh, it it took me a a little while to figure out that that was the only path that would make me happy. Are there things from your computer science studies that stand you in good stead as a musician? No, honestly, (laughs) people always say, oh, well, there's a relationship between computers and music or computers and math, or maybe you can make music with computers and all these things. Um, I mean, I think there's certain aspects of my, the way my brain works that maybe are good for both that uh, I tend to be very analytical. I tend to be a very linear thinker, but uh, I I don't think that I I would say that I've gotten anything out of studying computer science that has really added to my music. Uh, I, I think it's good to be a citizen of the world. I think it's good to be aware of what's going on in the world in general, to be a good musician, to be aware of uh, all music and, and and also, you know, the environment you live in, the society you live in. I think all that is really important. I don't think that knowing how to write code uh, necessarily uh, makes you a better musician, though. <laughs> That's a very refreshing answer because as soon as I asked that question, I realized, ah, I hate that question. That's a very interview 101 question and I'm just going to cut it. And then you gave and then you just said no. And then I was like, "Oh, well that's definitely staying in then." Because that's yeah, I'm glad you asked the question because people sometimes ask that question and and it's just something people accept. You know, if, you know what that reminds me of and I I remember um I saw this interview. I don't know if you remember in Star Trek 
the next generation, uh, the character Data, played by Brett oh, Steiner. Course. He's a yeah, robot, yeah. and he's not supposed to have any emotions. And he was talking about how whenever he, he whenever he did uh, back in the nineties, he, he would he would do these conventions, you know, the Star Trek conventions, and they'd have these Q and A's. And someone in the audience would always say, "Was it was it more challenging to play a, 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 a character that didn't have any emotions?" And he would say, no, it was easy because I didn't have to show any emotions. And, and they would argue with it. But it must have been more, must have been more difficult to play that kind of character. He said, no, it was easier to play that character. To play Union. And, and they just refused to, to believe him. You know? <laughs> oh, I'm so glad we went down a next generation rabbit hole on this. This is it's beautiful. Things have taken a things have taken a very delightful turn in this interview, which I'm, I'm quite enjoying. <laughs> Me, too. Lots of opportunities for people to see and hear you perform live coming up, uh, including, I believe, tonight. If people are listening to this in real time, today is the 11th of December, 2019, and that means that you have a gig tonight, right? Yes, I'm playing tonight with Billy Mintz's band, my husband's band, and um, uh, obviously a lot of the music that's on my new CD will be performed tonight. It's a, it's a great band. It's a, uh, I'm just doing the math here, it's a sextet. We're playing in Brooklyn at a place called Bar by You, um, B-A-Y-E-U-X. Uh, it's a really great band, Rich Perry on tenor saxophone, Adam Kulker on saxophones and woodwinds, uh, the great Curtis Falks on trombone. I'll be playing piano, maybe organ, I'm not sure, uh, and Hill Green on bass, and of course, Billy, the composer, on the drums. And then, if it's okay to mention it, um, on Sunday, I'm playing up in Nyack, Sunday the 15th, I'm playing up in Nyack with my friend Virginia Mayhew, we, we're playing a duo, and we'll be playing all Billy's compositions in duo format. And that's at uh, Marine's Jazz Cellar, is that right? Yes, yes, I'm sorry, I didn't say that. Uh, yes, at Maureen's Jazz Cellar in Nyack, and that's uh, an early set at 6 o'clock from 6 to 7.30 uh, this Sunday, the 15th of December. Speaking of people who should have been on this show years and years ago, Virginia is another one. And so I'm curious when now you're going to add another element into, you know, you've taken these things from uh, band compositions down to solo piano and then to add one more voice in. Talk a little bit about navigating that. Yeah, well, we we rehearsed we rehearsed quite a bit already, so that's been a really interesting experience and a lot of fun. 
Again, sometimes there's a reorchestration required. You know, who's going to play this part? Um, uh, maybe I don't need to play this part. And then sometimes we approach it more like I'm the rhythm section and she's the horn, and, and we just kind of divide up the duties uh, the same way that Billy would divide them up in his, his larger ensembles. But we have played together for a long time. I mean, we've known each other for uh, you know, like something like 25 years. Um, we, we've played together a lot over the years. She has a new CD that hopefully will come out sometime in, in the near future called Years to Life. And I'm on it and Billy's on it. Harvey S and uh, some, some great wind players as well, some great horn players. And she played on my 2016 CD, One for Marion, which was my tribute to Marion McPartland. So we've known each other a long time. We've played together for a long time. And it's just always a delight. I feel like we have developed uh, su- such a musical connection uh, when we play together it's it, it's become so intuitive and easy uh, I, I can't um, I look forward to it so much it's, it's just great now you mentioned this fabulous band the Billy Mintz band with uh, Rich Perry Adam Kolker Curtis Falks uh, Hill Green and you of course and of course Billy and there are actually a, besides tonight there are a bunch of chances for people to see this band coming up in the next few weeks will you just tell us when when and where those are yeah, we have a string of gigs in, in this month, December. Actually, the first one is on December 16th, well, aside from the one tonight, of course, at Bar by You. On December 16th, we're playing at Bar Lunatico in Brooklyn. On the 18th of December, which is Billy's birthday, <laughs> again, we're playing at uh, Balboa in Brooklyn. On December 23rd, we're playing up in Beacon, New York at Quinn's. And on the... 27th and the 28th, the Friday and Saturday between the holidays, we're playing at Smalls on both nights. So that is really exciting. I love that you guys are like essentially doing an entire tour, but it never gets any further than like the Metro North line, which is beautiful. It's, it's, I yeah, like that that's even it's possible. It's like the subway series. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As we uh, draw to a close here, I I did want to mention I was very uh, lucky uh, late in her time with us on the Earth to uh, have a chance to interview Marion McPartland on this show. And you just mentioned, of course, your previous album, which was a tribute to her. And I wondered if you might just say a couple words about Marion as we uh, draw to a close here. Well, Marion was, of course, she was a pioneer as a female musician uh, when she came up in the 40s and um, 50s she was a great uh, radio host and what i what i loved about her show uh, piano jazz is on, on npr that ran for so many years is that she really peeled back the layers and peeled, gave um the layperson a window into the, the mind of the musician and she did it in, in such a an amazing gracious way 
But the thing she's not so well known for that she always regretted that she wasn't more well known for was was her or better known for was her uh, compositions. Um, you know, she always said she she wished that more people would play her compositions. And often I would mention to her that I was doing a, a recording and she would send me one of her compositions and say, maybe you'll consider recording this. And, and I actually did record a couple of her compositions while, while she was alive. Um, and then after she passed away, I put together the tribute record. But the, the thing with Marion, uh, the other thing about Marion is that she, she was very supportive of young musicians. She gave a lot of young musicians their start and ga- gave them opportunities they wouldn't have had otherwise, including myself. And I'll always be grateful for that. She she really is, is you know, was was one of the um, the, the most wonderful human beings uh, I ever met. You know, she she was just a wonderful person, very supportive. Well, that's a beautiful place to draw things to a close. My guest on this episode is a pianist Roberta Pickett. Her new album is called Domestic Harmony. Pickett plays Mints, and uh, there'll be links to Roberta online in the show notes, and I encourage you to go see her and also her with uh, the Billy Mints Band as well. Roberta, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and to hear this record, and uh, I thank you so much, and I hope you'll come back. Thanks, Jason. It's been wonderful speaking with you. It's been a lot of fun. If you value what you just heard, become a member for 5 or $10 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. Thanks to this week's guest, Roberta Pickett. Thanks also to the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music and to Dave Rabel for the logo. Follow the Jazz Session on Twitter at jazzsesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H, and on Instagram at the Jazz Session. One reason to follow is that I post a clip from the archives on both those accounts each weekday at 1 p.m. Eastern. Take a second right now to rate and review The Jazz Session on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It greatly improves my ability to reach new listeners because positive ratings and reviews help the show climb in the rankings in its categories. If you'd like to keep up to date on my podcasts, my poetry, and more, you can subscribe to my twice-monthly newsletter. Go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. My spouse Owen and I host a podcast called A Brief Chat. It's about living authentic lives on our own terms, and you can find it at abriefchat.com. If you want to start since the show has been reformatted, you can start with episode number 86. Support live music whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.